and the third piece was a really good piece of advice we got from Paul Graham was whoever raises the money is the CEO. That's the only like, you know, I think a pre a misconception we all had before we got to start was like vote on it, or you had to like debate it, or it was some kind of like, I don't know, there was going to be this angling and whatever, but we did this process where like everybody gets an equal share in a founding team. And that's actually fairly common. But the person who's the best at raising the money or the person who's going to do the fund, who does the fundraising, that's the CEO. Super simple. Welcome to The Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers. And on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. I just got done recording with Matt Doka, who is actually from El Paso, Texas, where I am from. We've grown up together. Matt is one of the few people that have made it out of El Paso into the tech world up in Silicon Valley and done extremely well. Uh, Really excited for him and, and happy for all of his success. We talk today about the company he built, Five Stars, and the early days of going through Y Combinator and how they got there after him and his partner were at McKinsey. We talk about the things they learned from Paul Graham while they were there and the many lessons that Paul has taught. We talk a lot about how they found product market fit and some of the challenges they went through along the way. There were periods where things were really well, and then there were periods where they really had to grind it out and almost refine product market fit. We talk about selling his company, what that was like, and what it was like transitioning from more of a startup culture of a few hundred people to working with uh, a business that has thousands of employees. And we finish it off with a conversation on AI and how that's affecting kind of the VC tech world. Um, and then we go on to talk about how we think it'll impact the real estate industry and the different applications. We cover a lot in this episode, so I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. I just pinch myself when I think about what Fort Capital's done over the last few years. We're based in Fort Worth, Texas, and we have a track record that has already transacted on over $2 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. Our team is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between $15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me today, my man. Happy to be here, Chris. Happy to be here. Matt and I grew up together in El Paso, and so we go way back. And so today's a little bit extra special for me. Maybe let's start coming out of El Paso, like your career. Most people that come from El Paso don't get into tech. You were kind of an anomaly. How did you make that happen? Uh, it's pretty. That's pretty fair. I think there are all of maybe one other person I know from back home who got into tech, and that's because they joined <laughs> us. They joined us at Five Stars. So <laughs> I think my story starts with you know growing up. Both of my parents used their careers pretty extensively to serve to serve south of the border. So they were really big into medical mission work. I thought medicine was really boring, a lot of memorization, but I thought it was really cool, this idea of like, you know, having a career where you were both providing for your family, but also making an impact. And so the very first job, so I, I went to Penn, I studied, I was in the M&T program there. So I did engineering and finance, finance, because I'd always been interested in entrepreneurship or business in general and investing and engineering because people at Coronado, the high school that Chris and I went to, they said I was good at engineering and I should do engineering. So I said, all right, well, you know, might as well let other people dictate your life anyways. <laughs> and it uh, and it was a way to to keep optionality open. I remember looking at this map of like all the things you could do with one and all the things you could do with the other. I was like, great, I can postpone my choice another four years of what I want to do with my life. I didn't realize it would come at a really high cost of a lot of extra work and maybe a more grueling college experience than most. But I think over, overall, it ended up ended up being quite quite helpful to do both. So my first my first job trying to find this kind of career like my parents had was working at a hedge fund. I pretty quickly learned that while it was really intellectually interesting work, I wasn't going to be making an impact in uh, Latin America or other developing countries with that line of work. I was going to be making wealthy people wealthier and you know pension funds bigger, but that was about it. So I went back to the drawing board and then the next uh, internship I did was going to look for something real high impact and very intellectually interesting. So I picked investment banking. 
And it wasn't that <laughs> for sure. So at that point I had to pick what I was going to do full time. And I still hadn't really found something that was both really engaging or kind of satisfied my intellectual curiosity, but also would have this way to give back. And I almost went back to the hedge fund world, but a friend of mine had gone to McKinsey and said, they have this program where if you do a couple of years, you know, at the firm, you can then go do developing work, development work in any one of these, you know, developing countries with this company, with this group called TechnoServe. I said, oh, that sounds great. Kind of like what my parents did where they had these medical careers and kind of went to developing countries to help folks. I was like, that, that's awesome. So that convinced me to go to McKinsey when I graduated. And I landed there right at the beginning of two of the, of the 07, 08 recession. So it's an interesting time where we weren't so much doing high impact work as uh, helping companies cut costs and lay people off into a recession. And it was also there that I met my co-founder. We had started this, we, we had been in the same analyst class and then we started this prayer group together with a few other people who they all got dispersed and it kind of us left holding the bag. But we would still meet and talk about life every Friday morning that we were back in town and talking about life turned into talking about our uh, entrepreneurship. And it turned out we had a shared passion for just brainstorming ideas, trying to do something. And then we both realized about a year into McKinsey that we didn't want to make slides for a living either. Cause you know, while they told us consulting would be really high impact and, you know, transformational work, high leverage, a lot of slide making and, you know, maybe you did a lot of idea stuff, but there wasn't really much follow through. You kind of miss a lot of that. And so we both decided we wanted to actually try to build something. And back then you couldn't just go work for, there wasn't just 5,000 startups hiring kids straight out of consulting. It was like Google, Facebook, and Dropbox. And we're like, well, none of those sound that interesting. So let's just try to build something. So with nothing more than a list of 20 ideas, we finished our time at the firm, which we kind of committed to two years as part of the analyst program. I got the chance to do the development work. So I went to Uganda for five months, which was an amazing experience. I got to see a lot of really interesting things happening in using business and market skills for development. I got to see a lot of really sad things happening like corruption and people using some of these not-for-profits to take advantage of the poorest of the poor in some sense. I saw a lot of inefficiency and that kind of gave me this conviction to build something in a place where business is conducted a bit more honestly and to do something in tech more than agriculture. And so I left Uganda at the end of my program and moved out to San Jose because I, I had gone to school on the East Coast, but Victor I was a Berkeley guy and he said, you ha if we're going to do this startup thing, we got to do it right. I said, well, my parents will let us crash for free at our house in El Paso. Like, no, no, we have to be in Bay Area. El Paso's a no. I was like, all right, whatever. Well, uh, that, that works. I, I, I can learn to, you know, I can polish up my coding skills anywhere. And so I put the business, well, we had a bunch of these ideas, but really one of the things we learned really early on is ideas are a dime a dozen. Execution's really tough. And you got two guys who had just spent two years doing kind of business work and making slides. It wasn't like we were going to find a bunch of engineers just to build whatever we wanted. And so we realized we were going to be a tech for a while. And also that nobody was just going to build what two random inexperienced business guys wanted to be built. Uh, or if they were, they probably weren't the people smart enough, wise enough to work for us anyways. So we learned, uh, we taught ourselves how to code and how to build a product. And we'd had some basics in college and, and high school, but really did our first hands-on real world software development those first few months uh, back from my stand in Uganda while we were in San Jose. And right around when I, and we had applied for Y Combinator around the time that I was heading back and we got an interview. And so we, in addition to all this, like building the first versions of these ideas we had, we were like cranking and studying late night, you know, up till one in the morning to, to get ready for YC. And that was really the beginning was this move from Uganda into this, like the minute I land finding out, Oh, we got an interview in two weeks. This is like make or break. We got to prep for this. That was, that was my baptism by fire into tech and kind of the journey from El Paso to Penn to New York. And then finally Bay area. Okay. I have like three questions out of that. The first is, it's always fascinated me how people with no experience, no offense when you're young, can go to a company like McKinsey, this huge consulting firm, and then go to all these businesses like they have all the answers on how to fix them. So my first question is, like, what is your job as somebody early at McKinsey? Like, are you giving companies advice or are you just taking in all their data and then passing it off to a partner who diagnoses the problem? 
Because as you as I as you and I know, there's very few consultants that can't find a problem. I think that you know something I've thought about over 11 years now, having a lot of domain experience of my own, and and I think the insight perspective and like wisdom around what to look for is pretty exclusive at the senior levels in in a consulting practice. But there's still a ton of legwork to get things to a place or to explore like, all right, I've been in XYZ industry for a long time. It's really important to know the sales funnel. Like what's the sales funnel is the right question to ask in like a sales project, for example, but then actually running the survey, cleaning the data, you know, reaching out to all the stakeholders in the company and then going back and reaching out to some who didn't do it again. And kind of all that legwork from running the processes to analyzing the data to cleaning data to putting it into like first draft of slides. There's, there's a lot that can be done without a partner being involved. And so I think the partners really provide that insight and wisdom, but to put it into practice in a study still takes a lot of work to, to, to get everything in together. So no, I was not telling companies, I was not telling companies what to do. I was, I was running the, we were, we were running the, the beast of the machine and, you know, the the beast inside the machine, keeping it fed with data and everything, you know. Uh, My next question, you can, you had a list of 20 ideas. Walk me through like how you knew something was a no immediately or like how you kept an idea, like continuing to stay on the list. Was there a a process y'all went through? Yeah. So the first thing we did was like any good consultants, we had like an eight by 20 matrix of all the different criteria, like our ability to execute this idea. The, what could the market be? What's its monetize monetization? How excited are we about the idea? Could we program it? Uh, and then we use that to sort of pick which one we would do first. So we had, we had realized that trying to do two or more at once was a bad idea. So we had to pick ones. We had this filter and we started. And then the deal was we would only work on something for like two months before it like had to be like kind of kill or success. And so that meant we had to get a prototype done in like six weeks, even though we were inexperienced and we had to then, you know, test it for the next two to see if there's anything there. So we don't spend, you know, kind of this two years of savings we had just on one thing that doesn't work out. turns out that's how a lot of folks do things now. So we were, you know, I think we were, that model's one I, you know, think is still really great to follow today for folks looking for their next idea. Don't like I see a lot of folks spend a ton of time building something to perfection only to have a, you know, realize the market's not there. Like spend four to six weeks building a prototype, you know, use that time window to force you to make it simple enough to really understand if there's a market there, really understand if the market's there, then spend two or three years really evolving it. And, and a prototype from your perspective is what? Like we can talk we can talk about what you eventually built, which is five stars, but on any of those ideas, what is a prototype? Our first idea was in was kind of in your in your in the real estate space. So we wanted to build this, you know, so all a lot of our ideas around this theme of fostering a community through tech, fostering more intimate connected communities. But our first idea, I like to say was an early predecessor to Nextdoor. We were going to create hyperlocal communities by selling property managers a portal to like collect rent, make maintenance requests. But then it was going to like have, you know, stores could post deals for that for that group of apartments. Like people could connect with each other. There would be all these hyperlocal version of a Craigslist there. And that took us about six weeks to build something that would actually let you pay rent online, make a maintenance, submit a maintenance request, get follow up for it. And then, uh, well, actually eight weeks, but. What we realized pretty quickly was that the one apartment complex that we had done the beta testing in, it was beta tested by the time we were like actually at the YC interview. We had, you know, 40 or 50 people using it. And what we realized was most property managers other than our friends and who had let us in on the beta were a lot harder to sell. It's going to be a really tough grind to actually go get a bunch of these small to medium sized prop codes to like use to use this product. And so we had built something that we thought was great with a client that you can't really count as a true sales test. And then we realized we actually had it. We didn't put all this work into it and, you know, it wasn't going to be marketable. It was going to be too expensive to try to sell. We're just going to have such a low conversion rate. So the next idea, which was the loyalty idea, like, Hey, let's build something. Victor had consulted with like Starbucks, Sephora and Macy's on their loyalty programs at McKinsey. And we're like, Hey, let's do this for the little guys. But we actually, without, before writing a single line of code, we called like a hundred businesses around the U S we tried to sell them. We made up this whole, like we basically made up what the product made a fake brochure. We made a fake website we made up what the product did. And then we'd say, Oh, great. Well, we're going to put you on the wait list. It's not really in your area yet. You know, if they said yes, and I don't even know if we kept the wait list, but it gave us a lot more 
conviction that the time we were going to spend the two months of like kind of building the beta version wasn't going to be a wasted two months. Okay. And then before we get into moving on to Y Combinator, you guys were both business guys and, and your title is now co-founder CTO. You clearly learned the tech side. Was that just a decision that the two of y'all made of, hey, I'm going to be CEO, you go ahead and learn tech? Like, how did you transform yourself from a true business guy to CTO that stayed CTO all the way through building a massive company with a ton of infrastructure? It's a good question. I think you've got to be interested in the technology side. And then I just, you know, I had enough engineering and CS to have fundamentals and the couple of pieces I didn't do, I did a materials engineering degree, but I, you know, I did a bunch of CS courses. And so it was enough to do most things in the software realm. And then I think just lean hiring great talented engineers alongside to learn from was a huge piece of that. The other piece was just having a passion for it, like enjoying the work, enjoying technology work. You know, when I was in high school, people would talk about, oh, yeah, you don't want to do computer science because you'll be behind this really boring computer at HP in Dallas for eight hours a day, and it's terrible. So that scared me away, even though I kind of liked the projects I would do in high school. And then I realized, like, doing software for a startup was totally different. It was really interesting work. You could spend four hours in the blink of an eye building some piece of the product and, and want to go back and do it again in the afternoon or the next day or between 12 and 4 in the morning, which is often how late we worked. And so that helped. And the third piece was a really good piece of advice we got from Paul Graham was whoever raises the money is the CEO. That's the only like, you know, I think a pre a misconception we all had before we got to start was like vote on it, or you had to like debate it, or it was some kind of like, I don't know, there was going to be this angling and whatever. But we did this process where like everybody gets an equal share in a founding team. And that's actually fairly common. But the person who's the best at raising the money or the person who's going to do the fund, who does the fundraising, that's the CEO. Super simple. And so that was how, you know, and Victor was an incredibly talented fundraiser, even, you know, as we were just starting. And so uh, it was just a natural choice for CEO. As you look back, I know it's been 12 years. What did you get out of Y Combinator? And if you can share any stories about maybe what you learned from Paul Graham, that might be interesting too. You know, he told us to get our stuff out there even faster than like, you know, I think the way that they focused on coaching everyone to get prototypes out in front of customers, working versions, I think was necessary. It's not, doesn't come naturally. I don't know if it comes naturally to anybody. It definitely didn't, even though we thought we were aggressive, we, we it helped us, help save us valuable time to be even more aggressive. The, the people we were in there were pretty incredible. Like we were with people who'd created some of these open source packages and platforms that everybody's using to build startups. That was cool. Like, Oh, I know this celebrity and I know this, like, these, you know, software celebrities. And, and then I think just the, the network where like, anytime you had a question during this accelerator or afterwards, there was, you know, always a dozen people who could give you an answer. Like, Oh, we've got this engineer who wants to be what's, what's top comp. We really want to land this engineer. I got this HR problem. What do you, what do you think you could always get folks who were experienced to weigh in on it? So I think the network was valuable, the pacing and like the way to think about doing a startup was valuable and, and then definitely was, was helpful for fundraising too. What's pacing? This idea that move faster, get it out in front of customers faster, move faster, get it out in front of customers faster. And in some cases, kill it faster, you know, yeah, or at least get to a decision point faster. Do, does that network, is it still valuable to you today? Are you still involved with the Y Combinator community at all? Is it, or is, does it kind of die off after a couple of years? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Once you, once you're, once company and startup matures to a certain extent, like you start to get to this point probably on series B and C where you're hiring, like, you know, experienced marketing product sales folks and, and often with specialization in your vertical. So that part of the network, the advice part, I think can diminish a lot, especially because the experts you need are usually not other founders. They're usually like, at that point, it's like, I need to know somebody who set up a call center in the Philippines and really knows you know, all the gotchas for that. So it, it diminished a bit. And then like, you know, for fundraising as well, once you're past a certain early stage, it's it's really the sort of your business. It comes down to your business and, and it doesn't really matter as much, you know, who funded you way back in the seed round. But I've always enjoyed the network. And so I try to stay involved and help help other founders, whether or not they're YC, whenever I can. So I've stayed involved. I guess I've stayed involved that way. Okay. Describe the idea that eventually you did five stars. So what, what was it originally? And 
I'm assuming that's kind of how the idea is today, or was it a pivot along the way? You know, the only pivots we made along the way, or the only pivots I regret are the ones we didn't make along the way. And there was this time, this seminal moment in 2012, where we were so infatuated with this idea of turning a transaction into a relationship and community that we didn't, we didn't quite pay attention to the fact that small businesses really were clamoring for a next generation point of sale. And I think we could have done both. And around the same time, Toast and Revel, a couple of really strong software companies did lean into that trend. And so while we ended up building sort of the leading business in our sector, like CRM, CDP, and, and loyalty, I think the point of sales opportunity was just so much bigger. And we had customers who wanted, who are almost asking us for that. So that's a pivot that I don't, that I didn't make that I most regret. The ones that we did do is mostly the core business is still what it is today, where people are signing up you know, they're earning points at a store by typing in their phone number, they're redeeming those points for different things. And then we're using all that data to automatically monitor the customer, the customer's health and like bring them back in. If it's like your birthday, we do that, all that stuff on behalf of the merchant to send you a surprise and delight birthday. Or if, if we detect you haven't been in a while and they're at risk of losing you as a customer to try to do something really aggressive to get you to come back and re- restart the habit. So we're doing a lot of those marketing motions for merchants. And what we added about four years ago was building all that marketing into the payment flow. So, you know, really even today, most people are doing payment processing because they have to, you got to take a credit card, you got to pay 2%. You don't get much other value than like, well, if you didn't offer it, people just pretty binary, but it's kind of a cost center. And we figured out a way to re-engineer the payment flow where if they're doing payment processing with us, or even if they use us as a payment gateway with their existing processor, we can turn that payment experience into a way to supercharge adding people to the CRM. So they build a much larger, so they're still paying the credit card company 2%, but as part of that flow that has to happen, they're building a database three, four, five times larger than our historical numbers, which are already a couple times larger than most of the other competitors in the industry. So you build this massive customer database, which for anyone in marketing, the larger your database is, the more ROI you're going to get from it. And so that was the big expansion of the business, I think, four years ago that ended up leading to us being acquired by SumUp, which is a big player in the payment space worldwide and loved what we had done with this intersection of identity payments and and CRM. So just to kind of confirm, like you were for like Starbucks, they have their loyalty and and, and CRM program. Maybe they have it in-house because they're so large. I don't know. Maybe they outsource it. But you were saying, look, we want it's not fair that Starbucks gets to have it and not everybody else gets to have it. So we're going to bring it to Main Street. Exactly. Okay. The second question is, you said there's a pivot you didn't regret or that you do regret not taking. Was it something at the time, like, is it in hindsight that you regret or was it something that even as you were going through it, it was like, this is going to be huge, but maybe we're too busy doing what we're doing. So we're just going to stick to that. Or is this in pure hindsight? Like, how, why did you miss it? In 2012, we thought, like in 2012, the point of sale space was really fragmented. There was like a whole bunch of these different windows point of sales. I mean, you, you probably knew folks in El Paso who were selling Aloha to, to businesses for their, to run their restaurants. And a lot of folks still use Aloha NCR today, but the space was fragmented. And so we thought the space would stay fragmented, that there wasn't really going to be a big market shift. It would kind of be this slow evolution. and. And so we said, well, but we could own all the CRM. We could be the CRM dominant player that kind of unifies all these fragmented point of sales. And what we miscalculated was that the next generation point of sale companies that were doing cloud-based point of sale, that actually was going to drive massive market share consolidation. And people were going to jump on that and leave these old systems behind. And they would emerge as a couple of um, a much, much smaller set of dominant players than this like very big fragmented market was in 2012. So that we didn't know that at the time. But we saw the opportunity even within our own sales force, like, hey, we could sell this, we could build it well, merchants would pay us more, you know, in addition to our CRM, we could be delivering this. But we said, no, we want to focus on the mission. Primarily, we killed it with like, well, the space is always going to stay fragmented and it's not missional, what we called missional. Now that you've kind of learned that, let's just say you built another company one day, is there another framework or set of questions you would ask yourself 
when something like that occurs that maybe would lead you to make a new decision? Or is it just one of those things that was like, nobody ever knew if Blockbuster knew that, you know, mailing DVDs was going to become the thing they would have pivoted. But is, is there a way to not make that mistake again? Or is it pure, you know, in the moment, you just never know what the future has? No, I think a lot less hubris about almost, you know, this like sort of missional calling that almost let us be cheap in our thinking or like a little bit, you know, it's, yeah. So I think that's one thing I'll take with me to whatever else I, I work on is this trying to be a bit more open to what is actually going on in the reality of the customer base you're serving. And in this space in particular, one of the cool things about the company that acquired us is they have a a large, a couple of large point of sales that they've acquired or built in house. And so I'm, you know, I get to play an active role in, Hey, we need to fund this. We need to do like, I'm, I beat the drum internally as to how important it is. It's like sort of like my second chance to at least do my best to make sure that we stay on top of this trend and, and, you know, don't get left behind the way I felt like we kind of did by not investing in point of sale back in 2012. I was watching some stuff on you before we started. And I think you mentioned it with kind of what happened four years ago with understanding how to build a bigger CRM for your clients through the payment flow. And and you basically said the first five years were like a rocket ship for the business. And then the next five years were basically, you were basically trying to find product market fit again. Can you explain like what you meant by that? Did you have product market fit and lose it? You know, one of the things in, in a lot of non-consumer tech businesses is the big channel that you're relying on is often sales or sales and marketing. And so at different sizes of revenue, your product market fit differs or, or maybe the flip side, the flip side is to sell a customer when you're about a 50 person company is cheaper than to sell the exact same customer when you're a hundred person company than when you're a 200 person company. And so the bar becomes higher to just keep that engine going as you become larger company. And so what worked at 50 really well, which was just the loyalty product at like, you know, 149 a month, loyalty and like marketing automation product, at like 149, 199 a month. As we grew, as overhead increased, uh, you know, the, the cost of maintaining everything we've done grew, you had the revenue you had to generate from your product per store for sale became higher. And so like, it was like, we had great product market fit, but as like the price point had to get higher because of all of these like things that happen as you grow your company, our corresponding product market fit kind of didn't gap up as, as well. And so even though we were this dominant player in this loyalty CRM space, like, yeah, it was, it was the unit economics we were fighting against or fighting to grow. And so that was this five-year journey of what other things do we build adjacent or into the CRM loyalty experience we already had that would ultimately sustain the cost of the go-to-market and the price point we needed to charge. Looking back, is, so that's interesting. So it's like we had a good product, but because we had to grow the company and take on overhead, the actual product suffered because of it. Is that what you're saying? Well, the product was fine. What suffered was we had to increase pricing. And so that was where customer, like, as you increase price, customers want more for, you know, like that, that distance was, and, you know, I think, I think to be fair, and, and I, I'm a bit of a, like, overachieving, hardworking perfectionist. I, I think I should probably at least disclaim it. most of my friends and probably somewhere in there, like, I think we, we still did a good job. Like I got a lot to be grateful for. It wasn't, you know, there's a hundred things I wish we had done better, but like, we've built a great platform. It is, you know, it's done a lot of good for small business, still decisions I regret, but you know, but yeah, we had these five rocket ship years and five years that I described was like really hard and frustrating, not really having that. We had a business that was good, but not great. And then as we came out of that with this new payments product, COVID hit, which added some challenge to it. And it was a, you know, sort of a, just a challenging later stage part in our journey where we had in it, you know, had all these, factors in play. And then the, that ended up leading us to the process where we met some up and not only was there a great strategic fit there, but they had the point, they had these two point of sale systems, which was for us like, Oh, this is the perfect way to build the the next leading product in this space. Like, yeah, we had missed point of sale, but then if we add CRM and their point of sale, we could, you know, become the next toast or we'll, we'll step ahead of toast and square in that, in that journey. And I'm very excited about what we can do as part of that platform today. Yeah. I mean, let's not, you sold this business for over 300 million. That's that's a miracle. 
for most people. So clearly a lot went right. I think it's interesting to talk from someone that was in something for 12 years. Obviously, you're super smart, call it learn from mistakes or whatever. But like, I want to keep digging into this a little bit because like what you said, you said there's things I wish I had done differently. Now, hindsight's 2020. So like leading in, I'm just pretending we start another company. I'm not saying you are or whatever. But if you even started five stars again, or maybe it's a different business, how do you avoid that trap of we're taking on overhead? The internet's technically getting cheaper. Like products are actually like the cost of software is going down. Is that fair to say? And so if we think about the companies of the future, how do they not face that problem where they have a great product that can't kind of what you said, gap up as the company needs to expand? Because I think you see that often at other software companies. Like the more you look into this, there's a lot of things that are like, product was great, but the company could never be profitable because it took a ton of overhead to sustain it. And there was not enough products to sell through. And maybe I could tie that in with AI and how they're talking about how startups are now going to be created and overhead's never going to expand the way it used to with new technology. I'm bundling a ton into this. And I think you kind of know what I'm talking about. But you said I learned a lot of lessons. Like, how would you do it differently going forward? Was there a different way to do it? Yeah, I think on the sales scaling side, I actually think we were ruthlessly good at that. Maybe the so aside from I think making a few different product decisions or operating our product org better so that we were just cranking out more stuff in general and could have hit some of those things in addition to what we did build. Like there's some, you know, R and D operating lessons we learned along the way too, but that's just about getting more, you know, those are incremental gains. You know, I think had we paused when we real, like, had we been maybe it's hard to say, you know, I think one thing we could have, we could have paused growth at certain phases more when it was apparent that we were having these unit economic challenges or things, the formula just wasn't right rather than continuing to spend on that level of sales. And we went through layoffs. So I, we did not do it. We just, I don't know if we did it early enough when we like scaled back. Could you really pause growth though? Like, isn't the, is it, is it the VC that's breathing down your neck to grow or could you truly pause growth? No, no, no. We were, we put the pressure on ourselves, but because the narrative, like the, when you do pause growth, you've got to be confident that you will come up with that next product thing. Cause you can grow at an okay level and still be all right. And, that, and that's ultimately the path. I think we did, we, we grew with good, you know, I don't, like our unit economics are never crap. So like we grew with good unit economics, but we didn't grow with like $10 billion company unit economics. And so we had these a couple of times and the more conservative people on our leadership team were were very in favor of like pausing, like actually doing the more aggressive pause. But the downside of that, and the reason we didn't do it was because if you pause, then even this decent, this okay growth you have is gone and you better really hope that the product bets you're making with that bit of extra time and focus are going to pay off. And so I honestly, I think we, you know, it's funny, Matt Curls, the other El Paso guy, he'd probably say we made the risky bet. But I actually think the riskier bet would have been to pause because you don't know if you're going to come up with that product innovation that closes the gap. So what happens if you pause and don't come up with the product innovation that closes the gap versus what y'all ended up doing? In both cases, you get, you get exited. You don't get to IPO in both cases. But in, in the former case, it's going to be a smaller number because you build less, you just have a less of a revenue base and, you know, and you didn't find that next piece of product to like close the product market fit gap. So it's just going to be a lower number. I mean, How did y'all find the product? You know, I don't, I don't know if we found, found it. I think it's still, I think we were, well, the, the payments loyalty project was, was pretty incredible in terms of unit economics impact. But we still, and we were, and we were and are now incorporating that into a point of, like the other piece is still needing the point of sale, go to market motion to actually get distribution in this sort of new product. It wasn't just uh, as easy as our standalone loyal, like kind of this loyalty system just kind of works. You know, so we, we had, we had, I'd say we kind of closed it. Had we truly like, you know, had it been this like, you know, massive, it had things, you know, I think certain things in the sales channel played differently, like maybe we would have IPO'd instead of selling the company. I don't know if we quite close, I guess all I'm saying is I, don't, I wouldn't say we quite close the gap. And like one of the things that I'm 
very passionate and motivated by is closing that gap now at sum up. Like I still want our legacy. Like I want to build something that was really great for small businesses to bring people back. And I think we're, we're, mo- we're still moving towards that, which, which is very motivating for me, you know, even though we did it, you know, whatever we sold the company, like I'm, I'm loving life at sum up. And a big piece of that is like, there is still this gap. Nobody else is closing it. And I think we've got a shot at it. We're, we've got a, we're continuing that, that shot at it. And define that closing that gap. Like what would, if you close that gap, then X would have happened fill in the blank. Then what would have happened? If we had closed the gap, we would, can, we would still like, if we had closed the gap, no, would, if you do today at sum up, like if you do, Oh, well, it, oh, it's going to be part of the, it'll be part, it'll be a massive part of the sum up IPO story. Like they're currently valued at 8 billion. Like if we close that gap and the go to market motion with it, I think it's a 50, 60, $70 billion company in the next five years. But what's the gap, I guess, is my question. What gap are you closing? Point of sale with C- point of sale bundled with CRM bundled with a consumer wallet. It's like the triumvirate. You've got the merchants offer, the marketing engine, and then the consumer payment rails. Like the, something to then really like connect and incentivize in a lot of cases the consumer. I'm going to take a couple steps back. You said we created a payment flow where we could figure out how to use the payment flow to create help our customers CRM grow three or four times more. Maybe th- this is your secret sauce and you can't speak about it. And I'm a, I'm a real estate guy in Texas. When I hear that, I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. What does, what is that? <laughs> what is, what does that mean? How did you take the 2% credit card processing part of the business and turn that into a way to generate more CRM users? It's a good question. So if you, if you think about most of the terminals you're dipping your card on, even the ones that are in a piece of software, it's tap, tip, done. What we did was we, in the minute we get a tap or a dip, we actually looked that up in our, in our CRM database to see if we've ever seen this card before. If we haven't, we immediately show, Hey, do you want to earn your points today? Or there's like a new customer sign up promotion, whatever we can to try to actually become a member of the store. And then without the cashier having to remember or even think, the cashier didn't have to think or say anything. So it's $15 an hour, $10 an hour cashier, don't have to think about it, it just happens all on this like customer terminal and, you know, and then, you know, continue with tip and pay. And now, and that led us, and then right, if, you, if we detect the car, you don't have to think about it, it just automatically we add the points to your account, whatever, everything's, everything's golden. And so that's the big difference between what we did and what everyone else out there offers. And if you look at a lot of the systems out there, they're, they're not that great. Like that hard, we had to build our own hardware. We had to integrate with directly with like all six major payment processors. There weren't any players. Well, I remember I talked to Verifone. I talked to Ingenica. We talked, well, I spent two out, two years doing due diligence on different technology providers out there because it's not that efficient to always build these things from scratch. Like as a, as a CTO, one of the biggest pieces of leverage a good CTO adds is, is how do you buy it instead of build it? Right. How do you ensure that your engineers don't have to do X? That's so much more valuable than executing well on X, or at least equally valuable. And so I spent two years trying to find a way to do this flow without building a lot of the stuff ourselves, and, and I wasn't able to. So we, we built it ourselves. Now we're opening it up to API partners. We're in partner with a bunch of point-of-sale companies, even former loyalty competitors, because nobody's built this sort of payments plus marketing type of payment hardware and gateway. But that's that's the crux. The minute you tap, we see if we've seen you before. If we haven't, we, we try to get you to sign up. And we do it without involving the cashier. Okay, so 2021 rolls around. And you've kind of said this a couple times. So maybe I'm going to unpack this a second. Maybe this is a more psychology-like question. But you said, you, you kept saying, well, if we had closed the gap, we would have gone public. Or you've kind of said, like, maybe we would have gone public. Was there a point in time along this journey or maybe it was articles that were written about you or a huge round you raised or somebody that kind of led you to believe like you guys are very close to like the ultimate exit that a startup is looking for. And maybe my question is, had your mind kind of bought into this idea of like, oh, shit, we're so close to doing the big thing that we set out to do. And does that change your psyche at all? Or did you never feel that way? No, it's a good question. The answer is no. What we found when we got into like 
entrepreneur, like startup VC entrepreneurship was there's just a set of milestones that you hit along the way, along the happy path. So like, and it's kind of in, in our space, it's all tied to ARR. So at certain ARR levels, there's just these events. And so, and right. So the business, the unit economics, the sales scaling, that's what drives your, your ARR evolution. And like, we were in the like late stage, like the, you know, really the next big ARR hurdle, which is around a hundred million of ARR. We were at 35 when we sold, but the hundred million ARR with like decent economics behind it, that's like when companies IPO, like Yelp, open table, whatever. So really early on. And then I think Vic did a really good job as he was doing fundraising of kind of just understanding the map and explaining it. It's like, you, you, you realize once you start on a VC funded company, it's just, okay, the A is in this range, the B is in this range, the C or, or valuations. So you're like kind of in the tens of millions and the hundreds of millions. And then as you cross the billion, whether you, you know, it's kind of like that's the IPO or like growth equity, which is kind of like an IPO anyways, phase of things. And so for us, we were like in the hundreds of millions of valuation, we never built the engine big enough to actually take us all the way to like a hundred million to 200 million. And ARR, which would have been like where that's where um, most of these companies traditionally IPO. So that's, that's more what I mean, but it wasn't like, uh, Oh, you guys are so close. Whatever's like, okay, very early on is this, there's this clear map, you know, you're solving for how do I get to these next levels of ARR and ARR growth. And once you get to a certain level, that's like the IPO phase. Okay. So 2021 rolls around. Were you guys looking to be acquired? Was it, what, when, when did the discussion of we're going to sell this business kind of enter the discussion? 2020. I mean, I think COVID was a really challenging time for marketing software and small business. Every, all right, everybody's closed down. They're trying to cut marketing expense. We had a surprising amount of retention. Folks realized, Hey, the only way I'm able to reach my customers now that they're not coming into stores through five stars so that actually was a, was a saving grace for us during that time period. But people weren't opening new brick and mortar businesses, which is always a big source of growth for small business for companies that sell in a small business. They weren't spending money on new things or new software. Their their folks weren't even in the restaurant working, and so that you know we were able to still work on a lot of software and innovation, but we weren't able to continue that sales engine. We had to lay off some salespeople. We had to pay others less because they couldn't get commissions that they were used to getting. So then they left too. And so that was just a tough season where when we came out of COVID, we needed a big infusion of capital to kind of restart some of those sales motions and, and, and to get back on. And, and so we, we, we evaluated our options. We were pretty sure at that point that, that finding the right strategic part, like the right strategic acquirer was going to be the best. And so we, 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 we talked to folks in the space and, and some of just ended up being a really great natural partner. Okay, so then how many employees did you have at the time you sold? About 250. That's a lot of people. Okay, so now you're at a company that's over 3,000 people, correct? Yep, yep. All right, so day closing, we've closed the deal. What's it like going from startup culture to now working inside a large organization or have they kind of left you guys to still be your own business and they just own you or you integrated into a much bigger organization now? It's a great question. We were much more the latter that they, in, in some sense, but some of, you know, I think the disclaimer I want to give to anyone on this journey is it's a huge degree of difference. Like no acquisition, no acquiring company is the same. Like we, we became really good friends, you know, in the course of doing business in this space with the Clover co-founders and like their experience at Pfizer is just, you know, totally different than our experience at sum up. And it's totally different than, you know, all, all these other friends that I have who, you know, sold their companies to XYZ. And, and I think some of did a, had a particularly strong DNA in generally fostering these autonomous teams at the cost of honestly having a hard organization, not a hard organization to navigate, but it's, it's, they're almost like 14 different startups are all working together in like a collective way. But as a result, it's really enabled our folks to just continue to do what they like. People didn't have to reset a ton. It's like they kept their stride. I think the sum of folks have a really good lens on EBITDA and profitability that frankly we lacked a bit at the leadership level. And so that's been, I feel like we've learned a lot, or at least we've been challenged to great effect on running our business more efficiently as part of that like ecosystem. 
but encourage these startups and they help facilitate them all working together, these 14 or 15 different divisions, but there's a lot of autonomy. And so as a result, it's been a very motivate, generally a very motivating place to be. Whereas I was just talking to a friend of mine who founded another company and he was over for dinner yesterday and they had this, you know, post-exit founders dinner that they had done the night before. He was like, yeah, you're the only person who's still working hard in this whole group. And I'm like, well, okay, like that's part of our Lebanese heritage, but also uh, <laughs> it's been a really, you know, I, th- I think it speaks not only to the great environment some have set up, but just the wide range of what you get. And you never know until after the deal's done what it's going to be like. Whether, you know, we had this one company we partnered with to do online ordering and, and DoorDash fought this other startup we were friends with. They fought tooth and nail. They bought them for like, you know, 80 million. And like they laid, and like within three months, they were so, DoorDash was so misaligned on this, this company called Bebot. There was so much misaligned. They laid everybody off. And like, that was, that's pretty, that's like the worst it can go. Where not only does your product die, but, and you have to lay all your people off. Like middle of the road is your product dies. And then like great is your product keeps going, but there's a lot of politics. And then in our case, our product gets to keep going and the poli- and there's not really politics. So I, I really lucked out, but it's a huge range of the ways that can go down. Well, you kind of answered it. I was going to say I'm, I, the majority of these stories end in maybe not the whole team, but it's like a lot of times the founders, they try and get you out as quickly as possible, or it's a one-year agreement and then you're gone. But it sounds to me like, call it a second bite at the apple, call it whatever you want. You kind of have maybe not a restart, but an ability to really get out of this company. Like you said, close that gap. Whereas maybe when other startups sell, there is no gap to close. It's kind of like we bought you, we're moving on. It sounds like you kind of have another bite at this apple. Yeah, we lucked out. They're going to fund us finishing that or like, and, and they, and part of the reason they bought us was to finish that swing. So in that sense, I think during the process of meeting potential acquirers, like their alignment with us on that vision was a key reason we wanted to work with some up was like, okay, we can go here and keep building. And they really want to build this sort of tripartite network as well. So we had an inkling that that would be the thing, but yeah, I'm super grateful that, that we get to, we get to kind of try to finish this product experience and system we're trying to build. You're the first person I've talked to in the Valley that's, I would call it at the highest levels of on the technical side. The last, call it month or two, we've been, you know, AI is starting to really rush into the world. And now I'm just going to pivot the conversation a little bit. This has nothing to do with five stars. How are you receiving all this? Like, what's it like to be kind of in the, the hub of the tech world? As I sit here in Texas, you know, Elon Musk was on Fox News last night talking all about it. Like Sam Altman's been all over. Chat GPT is like the thing. How do you think about it from a just a pure tech side? What's going through your brain? Well, I mean, so in my one of my hobbies is angel investing and advising early stage startups. So I'm all, I love that part of it. There's a lot of interesting opportunities out there. And we're always taking pitches and talking to folks, largely because it helps me stay sharp as a CTO. This particular wave of innovation is going to go to the incumbents. And I'm going to tell you why sort of my, my conviction really, I mean, not in general, but like, you know, I think the most of the people who are going to win this wave are going to be the big enterprise companies who have the client relationships. And here's a story that happened at five stars or sum up. Everybody's been playing with ChatGPT, And so, you know, there's a lot of great open source tooling out there. So a couple of weeks ago, just independently, a few engineers like, ah, oh, for my like evening weekend project, I just want to like play around with this thing. And one, one of the guys in the space of five hours built a chat GPT bot that, or like an open AI bot that could answer a support ticket better than our support chat reps in the, you know, we have some in, in the UK, we have some in Ireland, we have some in, in South America. And then this chatbot was as good or better. Like you type a question in, it was, you know, un- unmistakable. It, was, it seems like a human answer and it was high quality. It was fast. And because that time to do something that amazing, like, because of this, like that was a five hour project to do that is why the, why I think that the companies that win, there is a ton of efficiency that's going to come from this, but the companies that are going to win are going to be the ones that have the customer relationships already, because it seems like it's so easy to get a lot of these like working prototypes to deliver X value. They seem so much easier than other tech innovation waves I've seen. 
So I think Salesforce and ServiceNows of the world are going to benefit a lot more than a wave of you know next thousand startups. There'll, there'll be some startups that are going to win too. I mean, obviously, OpenAI has done an incredible job. A friend of mine is is building some AI infrastructure or some infrastructure for OpenAI for LLMs. You know, I think those are going to be great startups that come in this wave too. But I do think the incumbents are going to benefit a lot a lot more than in you know sort of your average wave. Uh, as far as startups, I was listening to the All In Pod the other day, and they they were just having this discussion that you're not going to need as big of technical teams to start companies anymore. You're going to be able to start to products much quicker with much low, lower overhead. Also true. And then Chamath said something that was interesting, and you said that you start up, but he said, you know, the last 10 years, it's been about raising these multi-billion dollar funds. And he's just like, these smaller companies just aren't going to consume as much capital as they were 10 or 15 years ago. You know, the next great fund might only need to be 50 to $100 million. Like, maybe my question isn't maybe more around how much money you raise, but does the job of the VC change? Or are we just going to eliminate a lot of VCs that maybe should have never been VCs in the first place? It seemed like by 2020, everybody was an angel investor or a VC. Does AI kind of accelerate that you got to differentiate or the industry is going to change or does it stay the same? Good question. So, you know, maybe the, maybe the way I would think about this for like the direct chatbot app, like the direct LLM chatbot applications, the incumbents win, but you're right. You know, in Tramoth, I completely agree with it. It makes building any product easier. Like all of our engineers now have GitHub's version one of Copilot and just they would not use it because it saves, there are certain types of work where it just saves you a ton of very expensive engineering time, which I think, you know, the cost, therefore the cost of launching any new product in any space is going to go down. I, I think that's absolutely true. I almost look at the capital flows as a different than the cost to start something. I don't know if they're exactly correlated, but the reason we had so many VCs and all that wasn't because the cost of a startup was pegged at a certain amount. It was because there's just so much capital in the system from, you know, 10 years of of 0% interest rates. I don't think those two cycles go so much hand in hand because many of these companies that raised so much, it wasn't actually because they were even going to be able to spend that much money. It was just, there was so much capital and it's a great insurance policy. It's like, well, why not? You know? And, and I think there's something to be said for, well, why not? If I can insure my existence for five years, like, and I'm raising at a billion valuation and X, Y, Z, like, well, it's, it's a pretty hard offer to refuse. And the reason they were getting those offers was not because it actually cost you know, a quarter of a billion to build X. It's because there was just so much, money seeking high returns. Where do you think AI is? I'm curious, where do you think AI is going to affect real estate? What, what are the cool AI driven or even just general prop tip things you think about? I think there's the, the common things, like you said, the chat bots that can talk to tenants, that can answer tenant requests. You know, I think there is, it's like all real estate's not that hard, but I think things that can just, you can run a model really quickly. You don't have to have a financial analyst that that runs the whole model and does everything. You can have something that is not only maybe helping build the models, but then if it's all in a database, it's helping start learning what's made a good deal and what's made a bad deal. And so you can start going back through the, you know, at, at our point at Fort Capital, we've generated thousands of models. It would be interesting to me to go through all those models and maybe have AI learn like why we did a deal, why we didn't, or just being able to start, you know, offering up, ooh, this deal you're looking at is very similar to that deal you did two years ago, which we might know that in our head, but if you have new people starting at the company, maybe they don't know that. Maybe they have no, if, if an analyst starts tomorrow, they have no idea the seven years of things we've underwritten in the past. So I think about it from that perspective, Obviously, automating workflows, like just like any company, I mean, it's just inevitable. Have you thought about hiring folks to to play with that stuff? Or are you waiting for vendors to come along or existing vendors to offer you those tools to play with that data? I need to introduce you to our CTO. So we have actually six full-time people on our tech team at Ford. I think we are quickly, and we are working on AI in a... we building something called Ford Operating System, which is how we run our company. It's proprietary. But that's now that's now kind of built, and now we're building on top of it. And 
we are starting to think about AI and, and machine learning, especially as it comes to how to underwrite a city, like how to go into, where are you, Oakland right now, to where we could go into Oakland, use our algorithms and our models to overlay over the city, and it basically starts showing us, which is not, it's at the, at the surface level, it's like, oh, well, anybody could do that, like where the hot areas are, but also where the hot areas are headed. And then within those hot areas, who owns portfolios of buildings that aren't obvious? So maybe you have six buildings that are owned by an owner, but since they're in separate entities, the naked eye couldn't immediately tell you, oh, this is a portfolio. They own all of this. You might think you're just looking at one building when in reality, you could be talking about six or seven buildings. And for a lot of companies, that's really important because as you grow larger, the deal sizes you do grow larger. And so seeing larger deals is huge. And so one thing we're using AI to do right now is help us see portfolios that you can't see just by searching ownership records or governor records. So I'm sure you know the term fuzzy logic or fuzzy matching, fuzzy matching. I'm going to sound like I'm really smart. I'm using, I, I'm, I'm stealing the words of people at, comp at our company that are much smarter, but they're using fuzzy matching to take a data set of buildings and in any one market go, these are all the buildings that are correlated, either by ownership, maybe they have a similar LP in them, just how are they correlated so that we can start seeing cities, not as individual buildings, but as portfolios around the city. So that's another way that we're starting to think about it. But then most importantly is, how does the AI learn our workflow through our FOS system, learn how we're making decisions, and then become something to where we imagine in a year or two, just like probably a lot of companies, our employees almost can talk to our system and, and say, this is what I need. And the system knows how to generate it and go gather it based on watching thousands of tasks and things happen within our Ford operating system. And I'm, I might be losing you because you haven't seen Ford operating system, but we think the real value is, can it learn our company better than we know ourselves? And can it make each person's job easier as they can basically benefit off the thousands of things that have been done in, in the history of Fort, and they just kind of keep getting better and better at their job without necessarily having to get much smarter? Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, and that, that line drive, well, for us, there's, there's definitely a lot of value in like accelerating support or, you know, augmenting support, augmenting bug research, things like a lot of the, the daily block and tackle stuff that, that I think we'll, we'll see a lot of cost saving type stuff come from that. And it's surprising how easy it is to put that something like, yeah, five hours is pretty Do you crazy. think there's the like 10 million people are about to lose their jobs? Is that just a fun headline or you think we're nowhere close to that? No, I don't, I don't think we're close to that, especially in a lot of, well, at least in a lot of the tech businesses, support's not a huge piece. And even then, I mean, most of them are just going to redeploy that human talent to, to just better coaching the bots, right? Like you'll just be able to deliver a higher, like businesses don't change on a dime and most of the layoffs have happened already. So people I think will be more apt to redeploy the talent to just adding higher service levels or in, in our case, right? We're saving any time. We're not going to go lay off 30% of engineers. We're going to actually just have them do 30% more product innovation. So I think companies will get more productive first. And the ones that are already, you know, like if you're under cost pressure and you, you've got a tough business already, like it's not, you know, I don't, I don't think chat GPT is your savior. You're probably going to have to do layoffs anyway. So, and it's not that revolution, you know, it's not that revolutionary and there is still so much around anything in support, like, you know, support, customer success, even engineering, there's so much of everything else around it that it takes a lot of human wisdom and insight of like, how do you plug it in? How do you weave it in? How do you make it great? Yeah, I don't see it as like this instant type of people get laid off transformation. Or anything like that. Well, I, this is a dumb question, but I'm full of them. So here we go. No, nothing's a dumb question. There's the AI language and models that you can create internally. So you basically at your company create your own language. But then when you think about ChatGPT or I think Google's is called like Bong or Bark or something like that. And now Elon Musk wants to create his. Are we just going to have all these different languages? Like, what is the language? Like, if you don't like what one says, do you just bounce to the other? It is, but maybe the way to simplify this for anyone who's not technical, the most important thing about any bot or any GPT you're talking to or any LLM is what they call them, language learning model, what data set was it trained on? 
And so for, for that reason, there's going to be some that are trained on specialized small data sets like our support bot. It only needs our support thing, but it's the only person who's going to get all of our support data. So it will have like a very unique niche, you know, whether we use Google's model or OpenAI model or whatever model is, it's really, it's like whose data set is it being trained on? And these big public ones, well, they're just being trained on the public data set. So they're like search browser. You can ask it anything you would add a search browser. It's just a nicer experience, I think, or a different, at least a different angle and you get good answers from it. And so that's, you know, as businesses think about being competitive, then your unique, your models and the notes you took on your deal diligence and the stuff you have in your CRM, you don't, you know, that will be the unique set that yours is trained on. That's going to make it have a unique perspective to any other bot out there. And in addition, like a lot of these large players are going to sell the like public or the massive so these big guys are going to sell their data sets or they're going to sell their data sets plus the model on top. So you can put your stuff in without having your competitors access it. And so they'll be like, that's going to be the business model there. But really it comes down to like, what's the data set that was, that this thing was trained on is going to affect the answer, like how useful it is for whatever domain you're trying to do that. And then a little bit around like personality or maybe the specific algorithm you use or kind of the mandate, you know, you shape it with, but really it's, it's all about like, what's the data set that the thing's trained on. So you're right. Your investment, I was going to say your investment in, you know, plugging, you know, like finding a way to get your models, your deal notes into a system that you can then ask questions and see what it can spit out. That's a unique data set, checks the box, differentiated. Sure. I'd say you got to run a couple of pilots and see what it spits out, you know, before you know how actually useful it's going to be. But, you know, you definitely have all the right ingredients of a different, you know, some reason to build something that you can't find anywhere else. So that's what we're most excited about on, on the real estate side. And then obviously we there's a ton of use cases for just how real, like if you wanted to build a third-party application that different customers, we could go through a list of those ideas. But I think the how I wanted to end this conversation is on the American customer. Like you have had a direct insight for 11 to 12 years into how Americans are spending money. And so maybe we'll start with today, but then I want to roll it back a little bit. How is the American customer right now? Is Are things moving and shaking? Are things slowing down? Like, what are you seeing right now in how the people are spending money? You have a front, line, front row seat to this. You know, I think a couple of thoughts. People are, the restaurant industry is still up, and restaurants one of our biggest verticals, like restaurant, retail, and salon, spa are the big, big three. But restaurant industry is still up uh, over 2019. You know, th- there's been significant growth, even beyond inflation. So, we aren't seeing massive growth, you know, but we're seeing growth. We're not seeing any negative signs. It's something we're paying attention to, like, you know, but it's definitely not a massive recession. I think in some parts of the world, there might be a slight, you could argue there's a slight slowdown, but yeah, I don't think we're, we're super concerned about it. But also as the technical leader and as somebody who also spends a lot of time doing like tech partnerships and innovation partnerships, I don't have I don't spend as much time as my co-founder does thinking about like the fundamental, you know, U.S. consumer and their effect on on our business and their businesses. I'm spending a lot of time thinking about how do we build better marketing mousetraps to bring them into into the business. Well, then this might be not a good question. You don't have to answer it. But is there anything you've seen since you started working with these customers in 2012, like how the customer might have changed over the last 12 years or any key insights and things? The biggest is especially down market, people want more things from single vendors. Like they want a single throat to choke much more and more and more and more. And so the more they can get from like a single platform or a single integrated platform, the happier they are. Okay. Do people, are people tipping more? I know that every everything's a tip now. Everywhere you go, they ask for 10, 20%, no matter whether they didn't. Yeah, it's funny. I... I I think it's a function of the of all this consumer. That's a good example, though. I think of of the power of better consumer facing payment experiences. So just like tipping has grown, I think largely because of the user experience around it. Now these new user experiences around it, I think you know that's that's similar to the bet we've placed on CRM growing because of the user experience that we've built. And I think I think they're both a factor for sure. And I think the technology and the user experience is, is why tipping has grown so much. When I'm sitting and like, I've just gone in and like ordered a coffee and they turn that damn screen in my face and I swipe my card and then it says like 15, 20 or 25% tip or no tip. It's like a psychological 
mind f. I, I'm like, I gotta leave one. I can't press no tip. That's I'd be an asshole. Now it's twenty twenty five thirty is what it's gone up to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's uh, it was surprising. It was that's like a everybody adopted it and it happened so quickly that it just be you're kind of a forced change of culture. I think eventually, what does it mean? Like, well, they have to pay their workers less, so you know, in 10 years, prices may not rise as much as they otherwise would have because there was more tipping money at the pay work. You know, like, it all. I think it all comes down in some supply-demand wash, but but definitely a temporary jump in, in the consumer's felt prices for that reason. All right, my last question for the day. These, like, tech's in a down cycle. I think there's probably, we could all argue again, hindsight's twenty twenty. There's probably a lot of startups that got funded over the last five years that maybe shouldn't have or maybe shouldn't have been given as much money. Like, what are you thinking about the next five years? Are we still going through kind of a cleansing process and and maybe it'll be rough before it gets better? Or like, what do the next five years look like for a startup scene? You know what I, I would always say is good products always win. It's a perennial, it's like a little black dress is always, always beautiful as having a great product and product market fit. And so... I would encourage people to be just as aggressive about trying the next startup idea they have that they have conviction about than, than they would have two years ago. Sure, things were overfunded, and I think that, that cycles, but like good businesses are still getting plenty of funding. They have plenty of options because they've got good businesses. They can make you know make profitability happen if they want to. They so you know, and, and fortunately, some ups in that place. And so I think I think it actually affects the good startups much less than maybe a lot of the stuff that wasn't any good, but you know, to anybody who's got enough conviction to start something like, uh, you know, I'd say don't wait, do it, you know, and if you find an idea you believe in invest now, don't wait either, you know, like it's, or join now, don't wait. At the end of the day, the on a near horizon, it's like owning a house. The entry price matters much less than the location or the product you're in or the product market fit. Okay, you angel invest. If anybody's listening to this with an idea, how would they get with you and your group? Who do they, how do they contact y'all? Shoot me an email, math.doka gmail.com. Always happy to give advice, look at, looking, you know, I mean, mostly it's around small checks, big help. We're not, we're not leading rounds. We intentionally don't, but we're always happy to give fellow founders advice, hear what cool stuff they're working on and, you know, maybe be part of some raise they're doing. Man, this has been great. Thank you very much for for being open and honest with the last 10 years. It's been really cool to watch and congrats on all your success. Who would have thought two Lebanese guys from El Paso could make it happen? A lot of hard work. (laughs) Startup life is hard. Technically, it was hard work, humbling work. But, you know, I definitely learned a lot. I'm glad I did it. But it's not an easy, it's not been an easy road. It's a lot. We both have gray hair. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 